Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, it does me great pleasure to present today our special guest host, my friend, Chelsea Williams. And I'm going to, as I always do, give her a formal introduction. And then we're going to invite her on to be able to share with us information about herself. And um, also, we're going to engage in some really robust dialogue. So trailblazing social entrepreneur Chelsea C. Williams is the founder and CEO of College Code, a uniquely comprehensive company bridging the gap between workforce and talent development through a DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. College Code clients include global employers, nonprofits, and educational institutions. Chelsea is passionate about reimagining work and career, using her expertise to support and empower consciously inclusive organizations and leaders. She's also earned an international reputation as a compelling, highly effective speaker, engaging audiences worldwide and offering actionable best practices to media outlets, including Forbes, Association of Training Development, ATD, and the Society of Human Resource Management, SHRM, as many of us know it. Chelsea launched her career on Wall Street after obtaining her BA in economics from Spelman College. She's a Spelmanite, and she is currently based in Atlanta, Georgia. So do me a favor broadcast community in your own way, either through the emojis um, or through your, your messages in chat. Please help me to welcome my friend Chelsea to today's conversation. I'm adding you as a pen, Chelsea. We're glad to have you here. Thank you so very much. So in your own way, just greet this audience. Let us know a little bit more about Chelsea. Particularly, we like to hear things that we can't on our own read about maybe in a bio. So in whatever way feels good to you, let us know a little bit more about how who you are and welcome. And thanks for saying yes to our invite. Oh my goodness, Nika. It's so fantastic to be with you today on this Friday and to all of you who are tuning in. Hello. I hope that you are feeling good as we prepare for the weekend. And um, I'm really excited to be able to share a little bit about my story and hopefully empower you to share your own. Um, I originally grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. So I am uh, born and raised in the South, but my parents immigrated over to the United States for college um, from West Africa. They're from um, Sierra Leone, if you've heard of the country. So I live in an immigrant experience, but also feel like I identify with the Southern experience. Um, you know, when it came time for, for, for college, North Carolina has such great colleges and universities, but I was seeking um, what I we now called belonging uh, when I think about my experience growing up in K through 12 in North Carolina. And it was a college tour in middle school that led me to the pearly gates of Spelman College here in Atlanta, Georgia. I still remember the tour. I still remember the feeling. I still remember the desire for more. Um, and it was really, I often tell people that my DE&I story started festering and bubbling in K-12. But it was at Spelman College where I started to get the language and the experience, the connections. I didn't even know at the time that that's what God was doing, but that's what he was doing. And now I get to mix together things that I love, business, people, culture, um, education, and, and the work that I do. Fun fact, before I close yeah. things out, um, grew up uh, singing a lot. I was very much into the arts growing up, uh, choir played the clarinet, 
sang backup sing uh back backup for an American Idol winner. Um, and so that's my fun fact that I am I'm a music lover. Um, and I'm not in the music industry now. I use my voice in another way, but that's kind of where things got started. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So wait a minute. We need to back up a little bit because some of those fun facts that you share, we can't just gloss over that. We want to know more before we get into all of these other discussions related to DEI. So you are a singer. I played the clarinet too, but I will tell you, if I had a clarinet right now, I would not be able to play even Mary had a little lamb, but <laughs> I did play the clarinet when I was in high school. So we do have that in common. So, so backup singer for an American Idol. So can you share more, please? And us. Yes. So um, my high school days, I did traveling choir and um, did uh, what we called all county and all state choirs at my high school. And um, we had a really awesome opportunity at one point for our choir to audition to sing at the height of American Idol. So you might remember Fantasia and Clay Aiken and, and all the names like that, of course. Um, and so, yeah, we had an audition at our high school to sing backup. I was one of the people selected to be a part of Clay Aiken's um, tour in, in Raleigh. Well, he's from, he's from the area. So yes, yes, it was yes. a connecting point. So that was one of my like special moments as a young person. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you really do have a fun fact to share. A lot of times, you know how they give these icebreakers and you have to go around and say, name a fun fact. I'm always stumped. And so you're inspiring me to really dig deep and find some fun facts. Um, but that is so fantastic. And I love one of the messages that came into from Ann Kingston. She said, we already love how you're using your voice today. I thought that was beautiful. And so, yeah, I love it. And so also I'll share another fun fact for, for those of you here. Um, Chelsea and I are also, we belong to the first um, African-American sorority, first founded in 1908, Howard University, Minor Hall, yes. And so we have bonded around so many different things, including um, the love of our sorority. And so again, so glad you're here. So let's talk a little bit about um, your work and what you've done. And, and I, I am also interested to know about your decision to go to Spelman. Did you always set out to um, attend at HBCU? Or was that happenstance? Tell us about that. Oh, so, so much here, but to summarize, um, grew up as a, the predominant at, uh, at a, uh, I should say elementary and middle school where I was one of few, uh, one of few black people in, in my mm -hmm. schools. And it came time for high school and we had the opportunity to apply. And my parents had the opportunity to apply for me to go to schools in the Raleigh area. We applied for me to get into a magnet high school, which was about 35 minutes away from my house, Southeast Raleigh Magnet High School. But it was one of the most diverse high schools in the Raleigh area. And there was a predominant um, population of black students. And, you know, it started to become important um, personally and my family noticed it was gonna be a distinguishing piece for me. So there was no bus that was really able to come. My mom would take me to school every, every morning um, or I'd carpool with people there. And that experience was special to me because I started to see myself through my classmates, through my colleagues, and I didn't want it to end when it came time for college. Wow. So I did the college, I did the college tours UNC Chapel Hill, like all the schools in North Carolina um, had HBCUs on the list because again, going to a school where there was a significant population of black students, our guidance counselors were talking about the HBCUs. Like it was something that we were fortunate enough to hear. Um, and then just towards Spelman and, and, felt, and fell in love. And that really was my journey of getting there. 
No, that is great. Um, so I guess a fun fact here is I came so close to going to Spelman. I was accepted, came so close to saying yes, but it was the journalism and mass communications program at the University of South Carolina that, that drew me to, to that final decision. But low key, I, there have been many occasions, especially with now the great level of support and recognition of the value of HBCUs that I have said to myself, I wonder what that would have been like. So there, there's a little bit of that fear of missing out that maybe um, I I, I did not have that experience. So anyway, I'm always glad to share in conversations with others that are deeply connected to their HBCU experience. And so, okay, so let's talk about talent development and the work that you do in that space. You were featured in Talent Development Magazine for your piece on strategies for recruiting and retaining diversity, diverse early career professionals. I wanted to get that right. Strategies for recruiting and retaining diverse early career professionals. I want you to tell us more about the cornerstones that that work represents. Give us a little bit of insight. Yes, yes. You know, it, it's the bridge here. Uh, exactly what we're focused on doing at College Code. Thinking about workforce development in a new way. Um, how do we get this next generation, Gen Z and then alpha generation yep. will follow, prepared for a changing work and career landscape? It's here. Yep. Um, and so the piece was really to uh, provide a landscape of what are the conversations, what are the interests, preferences, necessities of this next generation of worker, part one. But then part two, Nick, and we talked about this, it's not enough just to provide skills development and coaching and, and change curriculum. We also have to make sure the workplaces, sectors, and industries these young people are going into are prepared to welcome them and to develop them. And so um, the article also discussed development strategies that organizations can consider because recruiting is only one step. What happens right. once we get to our organizations to keep them engaged, fulfilled, and really bringing forth their skills? Absolutely. So recruiting is just an activity is how I like to say it. If you really are also thinking about what are the ingredients, even it's around helping them to be well equipped to show up at their best, as well as the culture of the organization, uh, making sure that it is conducive for someone to be able to show up at their best. And so, yes, that's where we move it towards impact. So I love that. I'm going to see if my team can um, try to actually source that article, because I think this community was certainly gain value in reading it. It was it was very, um, very instructive and helping me to understand the lens in which you bring to this type of conversation and work. And so brilliantly done. So you happened to reference just a moment ago, Gen Z and, and the alpha. Now here's the thing, for the longest, and you are a millennial if I'm not mistaken, is that correct, Chelsea? Okay, so for the longest, all we heard about were the millennials, the millennials, the millennials, get ready, the millennials, the millennials. And then I felt like, okay, so none of the rest of us count anymore, right? It's just all about the millennials. And, and now, um, I don't, I'm not hearing quite the same level of emphasis on like the Gen Z. And then I understand why not the alphas quite yet, but the Gen Z, I'm not hearing as much. And so what do you think the reason is for that? Or maybe you have a different perspective on it. Maybe you are hearing the same level of buzz um, when the millennials was first entering into the workforce scene around the, the Gen Zers. Yeah. You know, it, first of all, it's important to note some people, and I noticed this happens a lot. Some people say millennials, like when they're talking about generations at work, they mean Gen Z, but they're saying those millennials who are in college. Oh, are in college. Like, that's a good not point. Millennials. That's right. That's a good point. They probably are confusing them and just now yeah. lumping everybody into the millennial yeah. category. Yes, yes, because millennials was the. It was like one of the, the. It was one of the best generations. Everyone spoke about it for so long. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. First of all, uh, Nika, there's some education that needs to happen around um, what are the generational breakup, yep. uh, breakups. And I will share some resources with, with the community here today, just so we're aware. No, but please do. Particularly when we zone in on, on Gen Z, um, really important fact we should know. By 2030, 30% of the workforce will be Gen Z. Mm -hmm. uh, 2030 is just around the corner. It's <laughs> right? around, right. around the corner. So we want to understand, again, changing preferences, experiences, ideals, you know, Gen Z navigating through this pandemic, um, heightened conversations on racial injustice, uh, working in uh, various landscapes and spaces and places. And so a lot of our work, what we're trying to do right now is twofold. We don't believe in providing solutions, training and resources to organizations without understanding the populations that we're seeking to support. So right. we are one of those organizations that is doing the advisory and the training, but we're also doing the work with um, students who identify as Gen Z across this country. We have partnerships with Chicago uh, public schools and some of their, their private um, schools as well, understanding the experiences of students there, New York City Department of Education, getting in the classroom and doing career development work with these young people. Why? Because they both need to understand, they need to be able to understand changing landscapes and what employers are desiring in 2021, almost 2022. But we also need to hear from them. We yes. have to sit back and listen to the experiences that they're having, what they value, what they're looking for in employers, because the two are going to be what's going to be a powerful bridge when we're able to actually start getting to the place where they're ready to pursue uh, uh, employment. Yeah. And, and Gen Zers, they look vastly different from how in which they want to show up to the workplace than millennials. So I always share that just when people feel like, okay, now I figured out the millennials and what they need and how to really engage them. It's like, now I have to be concerned about Gen Z. And you're right, 30% in 2030. And so if you had to summarize for this community, maybe the top three or so things that comes to mind um, as you think about Gen Z, um, mm -hmm. what would those items be? Yeah, this is, this, is, this is a big one. There's definitely, as we all know, the, the technology uh, experience that they have, um, learning, connecting, playing, all the things on technology and just understanding that um, that really is a central foundational, foundational part of their experience. It is what it is. We can't necessarily change it. We can coach and support, but it's their experience. Some of it has not been uh, their choosing the pandemic right. as an example. So we just yeah. should understand, we should understand that and be um, gracious towards that experience that they're having, part one. Um, part two, uh, this social impact, and I'm saying it broadly, but this uh, desire to be a part of the solution. And Nika, I'm thinking about your daughter right now, just because I know her experience as a leader at her, her university. But that point about, um, I want to be a part of making a difference. I want to uh, be connected to the community that I come from. I want to be able to have that be a part of my experience would be number two. Um, and then I think number three, uh, it's interesting. We always do these polls when we're doing um, any type of student development where we ask them the brands that they know and love. Like we'll just say, because we just, we want to learn. We want to say, what are you interested in? And I think a lot of people would be very surprised if you ask this generation, the brands that really connect with them, what uh -huh. they share. Um, so people often think it's like, you know, Netflix, <laughs> things like yeah. that. 
Yeah. But you know, even down to, you know, some of them will, will mention clothing companies. Like when we were doing a session in Chicago and um, one of the uh, young women said American Eagle because they're thinking about body inclusion. Again, they're really yeah. just pointing out brands that are speaking to their vast experiences. And it's really powerful to hear as a partner. So uh, those are just three things that I would mention for the group. No, that's good. I always say, I think we can learn a lot um, from a societal perspective from these young folks. I mean, really, they are, they are blowing my mind these days. And so, okay. So for those who may not know, um, tell us what is occupational identity and how does that translate into the workplace? Because that's something oh that we talk about often. Yes. Occupational so identity. <laughs> So happy you asked, because this is the thing. A lot of times when we talk about workforce development or career development, we are um, talking from the lens of skills, technical skills, or I don't like the term soft skills, interpersonal skills, leadership skills. I always say power skills because there's nothing yes. soft about those skills. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're talking from the, most of the time people are talking from the camp of, of skills for one, or they're talking from the camp of relationships, what falls under relationships, mentors, yep. maybe coaches, career counselors. And that is like almost the scope of career development and workforce development in this country. What we're missing from the diversity, equity, and inclusion lens is the conversation around what is called occupational identity, which is basically what do you believe you can be? Who do you believe you can be? Yeah. Um, it's the whole imposter syndrome, if you will, yep. experience yep. people have. If I can't see it, can I be it? Mm -hmm. um, I don't have anyone in my family or in my neighborhood or in my community who's doing what I aspire to do where do I get started? Yeah. And so the occupational identity uh, reality for us as an organization is the foundation. We mm -hmm. want both this next generation and the practitioners who support them, the professionals who support them to be building the capacity of confidence in this next generation every single day through curriculum, through programs, through every single speaker that they bring in to engage and empower um, you know, th this next generation. It's a full life cycle approach to building confidence and really being able to tap into the experiences of this population. Yeah, so how, I mean, I love everything that you're sharing. Um, what does that look like in practice? Yeah. Like how do you all facilitate and execute that? Uh, number one is taking a step back to help young people understand who they are. So we don't jump into um, here are the different career pathways that you can go into, or here's how you put a resume or an interview together. That that's all that's all secondary. Some of it is is like third level. The first part is who are you? Yeah. What are your experiences? What do you value? Getting to the root. It for in K twelve land they would say it's socioeconomic considerations. What's the social landscape? What's the emotional connection that these young people have? It's starting there and allowing them to explore who they are and to talk through what they see in their communities first and what matters to them in terms of the choices and decisions they're going to make. And starting there first before we get into talking about here's the the economic or the workforce landscape and how we can help you to get there. 
I appreciate that, Chelsea. And the reason why is because there are a lot of initiatives and efforts to expose different um, young people, particularly those that are underrepresented in those particular fields or industries to different disciplines, right? And I think that the, the thought process is all that's needed is just exposure for them to be able to see it. And what you are communicating is that, yes, that's critical, that's important, that's part of it, but it shouldn't necessarily be the first step. So I love that you've you've wrapped this container around this this um, opportunity that you know is now labeled occupational identity, and I think that's great. So I love it. I love yeah, it. Guild, Guild Education out of um, I want to make sure to give them credit. Guild Education out of um, San Francisco has done quite a bit of work in this space. Mm. Um, and it really it, again it's reimagining when we talk about career development that yeah. we're not starting with self and we're not understanding the very real, real barriers that exist on levels of socioeconomic status, right. race, ethnicity, gender, all the things, that's a short list. We're missing the opportunity um, to really empower students for where we are today. And it's gonna continue wow. to evolve. Yeah. I love that. And mention the resource again that you, that you mentioned. Uh, the organization is Guild Education. Build education. Okay, yes, yeah. we have that into the chat already. So that's great. Okay, so how and why is it important for employers to audit the demographic representation in early career programs, such as interns and graduates? Uh, you're saying, how, how do people do that? I want to make sure yeah. I hear. Why? Why is that important why? for, yeah, for employers to audit the demographic representation in early career? Great and, question. And, and, and then I have the same question for, because I know that you really focus mostly on early career, but um, I would imagine that focusing there is also about building this pipeline to fill those mid-level and senior level positions <laughs> as well, if we are, <laughs> you know, providing the right trajectory of support. Yeah. Historic, great question, Nika. Historically, organizations who have focused on early talent, let's also understand early talent could be interns, apprenticeship, like a junior level roles. Let's just yeah. say that that's the big category here. Traditionally, that space has been um, uh, focused exclusively on where maybe leaders of the organization have gone to college or maybe there's like a philanthropic connection to a nonprofit or a school and so um, relationships in many places have been birthed kind of just by friends and family or some type of internal connection. Um, we certainly have organizations that have established university recruiting and relations uh, departments that are really leading the work, but that's not the vast majority of, of organizations across the country. And so when we talk about taking a step, uh, a step in the process that starts with landscape analysis, it is understanding what's the current state of, um, let's use college and university as one category. What's the current state of colleges and universities in this country? Um, what exists? Uh, uh, what's the breadth of four-year, two-year HBCUs? historically black colleges and universities, HSIs, Hispanic serving institutions, tribal colleges, understanding everything that's available. And then here's the next step, taking a step to determine what's the demographic within those institutions on a gender level, on a racial level, because that's gonna help us actually come up with a strategy when we know the data, when we know the regional um, kind of composition around which institutions are gonna be the best partners for our organization. Cause it's not gonna look the same for everyone. And right. so um, if we start there, it's the equity conversation. We have an opportunity to design for equity by starting by understanding what currently exists mm -hmm. and then building our strategy off of that data and that information 
And then Nika, my final point, making sure you, when you have the understanding in the landscape, you consider what's the value proposition that my organization has to be able to connect with uh, the populations we're deciding that we would like to partner or recruit from. Those steps have to happen for equity and inclusion to be the foundational piece of the early career experience. That is so rich, Chelsea. And I love how you are bringing to this conversation um, the fact that we need to reimagine this whole process, right? I mean, I think that you know it's easy for us to say, if you want to build a, a really good, diverse, um, pipeline of talent that's representative across many different demographics. You know, some of the first things that people will suggest is build relationships with HBCUs. Okay, and and that's a step. But how are you strategically? Because there are lots of HBCUs, right? And so, how are we being more strategic about those strategic alliances and partnerships that we're trying to build to reach our end goals? And so, I love that you're bringing greater clarity to the conversation and, and depth that I think so many of us don't always consider. So that is that is really key. So you are the founder, as we've talked about, um, and you're, you're opening, as we shared your, your bio, and CEO of College Code. Tell us a little bit more about its mission and bridging the gap between the workforce and talent development through a DEI lens. And you've touched on this, but I want this audience to get the value of really knowing exactly the, the skill sets that you bring um, to many um, challenges that many organizations are trying to solve for. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So we, I started college for three years ago out of industry. So I mentioned that I, I'm, I started my career as truly an HR baby. A lot of people fall into HR. They're like, oh, I'm here. Hi, hello, I'm in HR. I was one of those people who literally in high school, when I was thinking about career pathways, I was like, oh, this HR thing sounds very interesting. I was one of those. It's weird. I know, but it, it's my story. And so I literally remember my mom brought it to my attention over the summer. She's like, there's a box in the basement that has all of your black enterprise, like HR, 100 HR leaders and Sherm magazines. It's back there. <laughs> You're doing that now. It's back there. But I start there because, yeah, I know, tears, seriously. I start there because um, I am one of those people who has always been passionate about people development and business and age and this HR landscape, it's where I feel as though I've really been able to, to learn and to make an impact. And so I've been doing the work for years, but through that time, particularly in my finance days, I started observing what we would say now are roadblocks and barriers to progression. Wow. And that progression, um, Nika, I, I was co-leading university recruiting at my last firm, traveling to universities, partnering with nonprofits, focusing on emerging talent. And when I would get to campus or when we would facilitate our super days, our interview days where we would identify our class, there were things I was hearing, there were things I was seeing, there were experiences uh, students were sharing where I was saying, my gosh, there's got to be a better way. And so I remember I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I had finished a recruiting event. This is probably 2017, 2016. I found myself in the hotel lobby and I was like, just writing. One day I just put my camera on, I was just writing. It turned into a draft business plan, <laughs> which wow. I put to the side. I was like, you know what? I'm not there yet. Because I think a lot of times we say that. I said, one day. But it kept coming up as I was doing my work. And then it was just, it was really one moment where I said, you know what, there's something here. Mm -hmm. And to your point, there are a lot of organizations that are doing subsets of this and they're incredible, yeah. but they're not really playing this advisor right. and solution bridge between the two. 
And so 2018 came and I took the faith step to start College Code. Now this is all before the pandemic and the racial unrest of 2020. I didn't know that this is what I'd be stepping into, but um, goodness, timing. Yeah. Because it really became a moment for us to, to say, we started just being workforce development and career development, working with schools, nonprofits and associations on how we bridge the talent gap with the lens mm-hmm. towards diverse populations. But Nikki, you know this, you start doing that and your partners trust your work and there's um, progress and impact there. And they say, well, can you do this as well? Because you do this too. (laughs) And then we started doing more talent development work and retention work with our partners. And so now, and I was sharing this with you, we're going to be focusing on both workforce development and talent development and retention in 2022 and really being able to serve our partners across the life cycle. So that's what we're doing today and a little bit about how I got here. No, I love that. And so you're going to be rebranding at some point soon. So we'll make sure we try to keep our podcast community uh, apprised of of, of that information to come. So we are going to be shifting in just a moment to take questions from the audience. You can place them into the chat or you can just prepare to unmute yourself at that particular time and share your question live. And we do um, value and appreciate when those are willing to do so. Um, But a couple other questions while maybe you're thinking about um, what types of questions you want to present to our guests co-host. And so how have the emerging class of professionals differentiated the hiring process and what should employers know? Ooh, juicy question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we did training with one of our CPG companies over, over the last week. We've been working with hiring managers now. And that was, that was a part of the presentation that they weren't expecting where I said a, a lot of organizations and hiring managers have focused on sourcing and selection finding the talent pools and selecting the talent pools. They have not thought about attraction, employer brand, positioning, experience, and they have not thought thought about uh, Mika conversion. Yeah, yeah. Happening now, you have multiple people who maybe make it to the uh, final round. It's time to make a decision. You are thinking, or maybe historically, it's been very easy for someone to say, I'm joining your organization, your team. Now people are saying, oh, I've got other offers and managers have to be prepared to sell the offer. Yes. And so what we're hearing and seeing now is, um, you know, first of all, emerging generations and um, really generations across the board focusing on values and um, what they truly desire out of work, hence the great resignation conversation that's taking place. Yes. Um, And so I think the big call to action is anyone who's um, recruiting for any open role or supporting that process, if we're not building capacity in the space of how do we actually identify our value proposition as an employer and communicate that value proposition in a way that speaks to the heart of people, we're missing it. And so that's a big call to action for 2022. No, I love that. Yeah. The, you know, hiring managers, employers have to be much more thoughtful about that process these days because um, it really is driven often by um, the, the, the person who's seeking employment. They're in the driver's seat in many regards because there are many options out there. And so, no, I, I, I appreciate that. Okay, so are there any questions at this time? I have many more for Chelsea, but again, I don't want to hog all the time. I want to give our audience an opportunity to chime in. Um, I'm looking through the chat right now. And again, we have some good resources that are being shared there. If you have a question, feel free to unmute yourself at this time and share. And Lynn Roy, I saw that you had a question earlier. Um, 
And I don't know if this was in regard to, I don't know what point this was in regard to. So I'm going to invite you to unmute yourself to help uh, familiarize us with maybe what we were talking about at the time. Thank you, I appreciate You're it. You're welcome, thanks for being here. It's great, I'm a little bit under the weather, so that's why my voice is kind of raspy. <laughs> Um, it's great to be here. You, I came in at the point um, you were deep into um, talking about um, data and you were giving different um, antidotes about the different generations um, and it was just, just flowing. Um, and I'm a person that like to get grounded on kind of your sourcing of data because sometimes we talk in terms of articles that's been sourced. And then, of course, the, the, the hard data is where I really, really appreciate because that tells many stories. So my question had um, grounds in that, you know, can I, I kind of came in on that point. And the question was, how much of your data is being pulled from the Pew data? Um, mm -hmm. And then you didn't speak of it, but um, I, it, I, as Cam was alluded to in terms of the challenges of higher education, as it relates to admission, uh, at least that was my interpretation, and I just finished doing some reading on the cliff. Um, and so I wonder if you can address your data sources that you use. Yeah, love the question. Love Pew, absolutely use it. A lot of times from an economic or socioeconomic standpoint, there's a lot of things we pull there. We use Gartner a lot for talent development, significant. Um, we use sources and nonprofits like um, American Association of University Women, AAUW. They do quite a bit of research on STEM and the experience of women and girls. We use Lean In, their research on women at work. We use COPUL. COPUL is an amazing, uh, one of the outstanding uh, national leaders of DEI, and they do a lot of work on uh, people, DEI, belonging, et cetera. And so those are just a few that come to my mind at the moment. Um, but again, we can't provide solutions and we can't train people without understanding the landscape. So we are consistently <laughs> uh, pulling and leveraging data as our uh, indicator of, of opportunity. Yeah. And, and I'll just add one other, the US Labor Department um, is one of those areas um, that has a ton of um, data as it relates to kind of where needs are um, in terms of demand too. It was an institution within the Big 10 that used to publish the um, supply and demand for higher education. They were the leading ones that have a research component at that university, um, but they saw it wasn't profitable. And so they discontinued it, but that data still exists when you look at US Labor Department. I don't know yes. if anyone has picked up that information. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I think since you brought up Department of Labor, my final will be for college, university, uh, employers, NACE, National Association of Colleges and Employers. I, it'd be a shame if I didn't mention them. Yeah, They're fantastic, fantastic, and they're a partner. Um, so they are doing really great work in this space. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Always good to see you. Good so, any other questions at this time? Okay. Well, others are still maybe thinking about their questions. I want to talk about the HR space and um, specifically HR capacity for the DEI work. You and I chatted a little bit about that before we actually went live today. And I know that we both have some perspectives. And so just share with us what you're seeing as maybe some of the challenges, some of the opportunities as it relates to, you know, HR professionals capacity to also be able to dig deep into the DEI work. Yes. Um, if it's okay, Mika, can I get uh, a sense of if there are HR professionals in the room? 
um, if, if people would be willing to do hands or a yes in the chat. I just want to get a sense of the landscape first because I think it will it will help me with my response. Any any HR folks in the house? I'm seeing some yeses. Okay, okay. So uh, listen, I think um, do quite a bit of work with HR associations and um, organizations as I know you do as well, Nika. And there have been quite a bit of surveys that have pulsed through the pandemic, uh, particularly over the last two years, um, the areas uh, where HR professionals need to elevate capacity because of the changing landscape of work, mm -hmm. and then responses around the areas where there's a where there's comfort. So it was both what's necessary and then how people are feeling. Yeah. Well, diversity, equity, and inclusion has been at the very bottom in both uh, in, in terms of where people feel a competence. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about the why a competence and also transparently the tools um, to yeah. be able to actually to navigate through. I think it's one of those areas where um, depending on the organization, and we talked about this, DE and I uh, either lived within HR, yeah. lived, with the, with, lived within the executive team, might have lived within operations, legal. It really depends, as we know. And so for those where it did not particularly live in HR, there's this concept of well, it's being taken care of elsewhere, <laughs> um, right. not really taking the moment to really think about D and I supposed to be in, integrated in everything that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe not a lack of accountability or the resources to be able to understand how it flows through recruiting or promotions or compensation. Um, and so my point here is this is a significant area of focus for a number of HR associations as one example, and certainly HR teams across the country just in the sheer um, conversation around how do we think about our people experience through this lens if HR professionals are developing their understanding and awareness as well? Like what's the connection between the two? Right, yeah, so I am I'm definitely of the beliefs like you, Chelsea, that this work of DEI needs to be fully integrated across all areas of operations. So one challenge I see is not to say that having this body of work of DEI to flow under HR, because the, the greatest asset of organizations are its people. I certainly get that. But as you alluded to, it's not just about the people. It's also about other areas of operations, our marketing communications. It is about our procurement process. You know, are we including women, minority, veteran-owned, other underserved business owners into the consideration set for those um, partnership opportunities? And so I find that when it's just relegated to HR alone, um, there is less propensity for it to find its way in um, a deep capacity in other areas of the organization. So that's one thing that I, I always, um, you know, put up as a red flag to just consider when organizations are seeking counsel around, you know, where should this, this work and this function live? And let's be honest, it's just only in the most recent years that the DEI piece has been much more embedded into HR training. And that has a lot to do what has been happening in society over the past few years. And so many of our clients who are our primary points of contacts, um, they may be in the HR space, but they have the wherewithal to realize that there's, there's a gap here. And so how in which we execute and solve for um, strategic solutions around DEI they don't always feel well equipped to do that. Now, I know that that's changing. I've seen a lot of programs that have are starting to shift that from an HR discipline perspective, but um, I do think that it's worthy of, of, of bringing to light and having you know dialogue around. 
Yeah. The other conversation here that's, I appreciate that, Nika. The other conversation that's not happening right now is functionally within organizations, HR is one of the spaces right now that is experiencing the greatest turnover. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I can think about a handful of my clients right now who they, I mean, they have told me in Confident Chelsea, our complete HR team, we are sourcing to head of talent roles, head of recruiting roles, head of employee relations role. So that's also playing a role in transparently, transparently make a sustainability. You have a, a DEI leader who comes in, if they have a strategy, well, HR is going to touch the strategy. And if the person is leaving every year, the HR team leaders are leaving every year, it's hard to be able to, to continue momentum. So that's a little bit of it as well. No, I agree. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is, and I'm sure you've heard this as, you know, being someone that has been in the HR field for quite some time, but um, I, it is often that I, we will hear um, associates within organizations to say, I'm having this challenge. And sometimes that challenge is kind of labeled something related to DEI and they're not comfortable sharing it with the HR. Because again, the perception of HR is really here to protect the organization. So I'm not as inclined to see them as someone who's going to understand my DEI challenge and be able to, to help me navigate that, you know, without it creating some other, you know, having some repercussions attached to it. So has that been something that you've experienced or been a part of conversations where that has surfaced? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And I think, listen, I think again, the HR function itself, and I really think the pandemic, I hope the pandemic brings light to the necessity of the function, Nika, because I think again, at so many organizations, HR is seen as, uh, admin, the, the strategy, um, and true people leading engine, depending on the organization, depending on the sector is still kind of murky. And so there's almost like um, an importance of highlighting the value add and aligning on this as a strategic function that's still happening at some places. So if you combine HR seen still as admin, not necessarily strategic and DE and I's underneath that too, oh my gosh, you know, can you imagine? Like, it's just yeah. it's, like, it's not great. So there's just a few things like that, that I think hopefully through this um, pandemic conversation, re return to office, new dynamics of work, we have an opportunity to reset and really launch the function where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. So this question came in to me directly and I'm going to present it to you, Chelsea. What advice would you give graduates starting their careers during this pandemic who want to ensure they're asking the right questions in their interviews? Mm, beautiful question. Um, authenticity. Taking the time, I, we, I tell any job seeker who comes to me, and you said it, Nika, it's not just about the employer wanting you. Yeah, right. You wanting to be at the organization. And if there's ever been a time where you can be reflective and choosy, it's now. And so I think just taking a step back to line on values, to think about your preferences and your ideals, the past two years have allowed us an opportunity to, I hope, reflect and consider what um, feels right for us. It won't be perfect, but you can at least think about the ideals that matter to you and approach the job search or your career through that lens. I call that conscious career, conscious mm -hmm. career development. And so I think that's, that would be my suggestion for the person who, who, who posed the question. 
Chelsea, for those organizations who are drawing a hard line in the sand to say that as soon as it's completely safe, and many of them have already made this call, for us to be back proximate in the same facility working together and in, in without the hybrid or remote option at all, what would you say to them? What, what, what do you surmise is going to be some potential challenges that they may face with that firm decision? Uh, retention. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. a story. I've had dozens of people over the past week or so, just because of some of the projects were on, tell me, Chelsea, uh, they're telling me November 1st, oh, they said November 1st, we needed to be in two days. They, they're saying January, we need to be in a few days a week. There's no reason for this. Mm-hmm. I have determined that um, working remotely is my preference. Um, I like my organization, but I don't like them enough to subject myself to this. I'm going to be looking for another job in the new year. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, very much so. I'm hearing it too. I'm hearing it too. So what do you think are those main drivers of employers feeling the need to have people in a brick and mortar building in order to be able to be productive? What do you think it is? Oh, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's real estate costs. <laughs> Like yeah. people sign contracts and, and it's control. I think for some people, it's leadership. This is how they have done things for decades. And it's very hard to change what you have had to do. Um, and I think that there's some leaders who are just like, well, we need this. I think there are some people who actually think that. And I do think there's a level of connection that's formed in person. And I think there's some people who are really struggling to figure out out how they're going to be able to how they're going to be able to amplify connectivity virtually and it feels a lot easier just to say bring people in a few days a week because at least they can point to trying I think it's a mixture of several things like that yeah so Kavana has a question now do you want to come off mute and share your question directly or would you like for me to present it uh, <clears throat> good morning everybody uh casual Friday sorry no you're um, totally fine I put you on no, the spot I did I was giving you a chance yeah. to say no but I'm glad you're here <laughs> as always it's great to be here um when so I'm in the DNI space and I, I speak with people a lot and sometimes uh whether in my current organization or in other organizations I've heard the sentiment of in general the organization is doing a really good job in the DNI space but they may people may not have the same experience across the board. And so sometimes it's more of a manager issue than it is a organizational issue. And so how would you suggest people navigate through that um, if they, again, agree with the overall strategy of the DNI uh, within the organization, but are feeling challenged by leaders, their own direct management? Yeah. I think it's happening a lot of places. First, I think here's my big question when you post your question and I appreciate it. Um, organizations who say we're doing a good job at DEI, what's their me- what's the measurement and the metric to good job? Please, like, can someone share? Like if someone could share, Nika, we would be really great because we could just create a little tool and, and scale it and we'd be fine. So my first question is who is defining, who's defining that? And what measures and metrics are they using to define that? You know, that's, that's my first kind of theoretical question, but important question. And then the second is I'm seeing, and it's interesting, I was thinking about this conversation with Nika today about what I think would be a shame in the space of DEI success and impact. And something hit me <clears throat> early this morning. And it is 
if we have DEI councils, employee resource groups, DEI leaders who are doing the work and pushing out some form of progress in their organizations, but we still poll those people or speak with those people and they say, but I don't like it here. So there's progress on a macro level. Maybe the marketing is good. Maybe you're getting dollars from funders who say this is amazing. But we ask those people who are putting in blood, sweat, and tears to the work how they're doing. And they say, not great. That would be a shame. Mm-hmm. And so for, for us, I won't even say for me, because Nika, I know you agree. I think there's that, there's that question as well. Mm-hmm. To what extent are we measuring the impact and, and um, progress of the work? And if we're doing it without considering the drivers, the ambassadors, the culture carriers of the work, we're missing it. Yeah, I love that, Chelsea. And this is where I think conversations like, let's, let's really unpack together yes. what exemplary leadership look like in the context of DEI. Yes. And, and then as you begin to you know, talk about those different tenets or you know, dimensions of DEI work, um, that's where really clarity is, is surfaces because then you can see where there's not really great alignment among those C-suite leaders that are saying, yes, we want to do DEI work and we want to be fully committed to it. And it's a way really to test organizational readiness, individual leader readiness. If you say that you want to be the leader, this is what this looks like. Um, and so we often have conversations with clients around, do you want to lead in this space? Do you want to align or do you want to lag? Of course, no one's going to say lag. And there are some occasions where people say, you know, we, we want to be at least on par. So yes, in some regards, we do want to align, but most of them say, we are a leader. We want to be a leader. Well, let's talk about what leadership looks like in the context of DEI. And then it's like reality sets in and it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe we just want to be good, <laughs> you know? So anyway, I, I appreciate the question, Kavanaugh. So thanks so much for, for bringing that to the fore. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to be final, final point. If I can, Nika, I think we have to be very careful. Mm, we have to be very careful saying this organization is, 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 is doing really well at DEI. Right. Like we, it just, we don't arrive. Yeah. So what does that right. mean? And yes. transparently insider comment, there are some brands and organizations that we probably as society, depending on the group would say are like leaders in this space. Let me just say this to the group. Sometimes you get behind the scenes and they're not. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, you they're start not. pulling back all the ladders. You go yeah. through the back door. You see a lot of stuff. Yes. And as practitioners, we particularly are exposed to a lot of those things, you know? Um, yeah, no, that is that is so true. That is good. Someone someone did hashtag preach in the, in the chat. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think this is also why we have to make sure that if, if people are looking for a score or a grade, and this is our philosophy at NWC about benchmarking, we don't do benchmarking, at least not in the traditional sense, because if part of you feeling like you have arrived is knowing that maybe you're doing a little bit better than someone else who's only doing but, you know, okay, then where does that get us, you know? And so our benchmarking is more or less, let's pull what um, organizations are doing that is working well for them, that maybe you can modify it, you can scale it to size and make it work for the nuances of your organization, but it's not about giving you a score against what their score is. Unless you're at 100% across the board, then you you have work to do. So we don't believe in benchmarking in the traditional sense for that reason. But um, 
but yeah, I'm loving this conversation. So we only have a few minutes left. Um, and one of the topics that we touched on um, before we went live today was something that you and I both were really feeling a lot of passion around. And that was as people who, as practitioners who love our craft, we love this work. We also are the first to state how hard it is, how heavy of a burden sometimes it can feel like to carry um, on behalf of all of those who are relying on us to help them to solve for DEI and really effective, sustainable ways, we are seeing a huge influx of interest in this space and this discipline. And on one hand, you know, we're, we're proud of that. We love our work and we want others to love it too. But then on the other hand, is it really allowing people to take into account the importance of not just the will and the passion, but also the skill, the expertise, the training that really allows this work to be done strategic so that it can continue to be seen in the credible light that it deserves. And so just share your thoughts and your sentiments around what we're seeing in terms of the interest and, uh, and what do we need to be potentially concerned about or, or excited about? Yeah, oh, Nika, this could be an hour. Um, but in, in a few minutes, um, in a few minutes, I totally, I, I, I co-sign with you. It is so beautiful to see so many people say, I wanna be a part of, the, I wanna be a leader in this space. I wanna career, do a career change and, and, and be in this space. But I, I think we need to take a step back and we need to understand what's necessary to lead this function into the future. Because here's the thing, we've been doing DE&I for decades. Yeah, absolutely. This is not new, but uh, we are now in a new time where we need to do yeah. the work in a new way. And so I think that there's a little bit of the, um, let's reimagine this function and understand what's going to be necessary for this changing um, landscape of work and career, I think is, is one important piece that I don't feel like people are talking about enough. Um, I think that there's a lot of theory focus and, and, and a lack of understanding around practical application, especially if you drill in on certain industries and sectors. Right. I think it's really, really important. Um, and then, you know, three is, I think you said it perfectly, people have to understand what they're signing up for. Mm -hmm. Me personally, a part of my wellness plan was if in doing this work and leading other people, therapist, coach, my community, my family, my love life, love life all the things that matter um, breaks. So I told Nika, December 15th to January 15th, guess what? Not going to be sabbatical, taking a break and making sure that I am taking care of myself. And so I just would want people to have a thought process towards setting up a plan for themselves. Because what I'm seeing, Nika, several roundtables with um, DEI professionals over the past few months burnout, all time high. Of course, yeah. All time high, people in the hospital, that's not okay. And so we just have to like, we have to think about that as individuals before we, um, we say that we're ready to really dive into this because that's really what it takes to sustain this through time. No, I totally agree. We do have maybe 60 seconds left, but I see Precious hands up. And Precious, I want to invite you into the conversation before we close out. Thank you. And thank you so much for this. I was just going to say, when you're speaking about your last point, it makes me think of my word. My word is equanimity. And it's so important as far as that mental composure and calm, because those of us in this space, we have passion, we have empathy, we're caring. And we cannot give all we have and give out. Talking about going to the hospital, it's not an option. But the only way we can do that is if we learn how, I think one of the, pre the prerequisites 
to being able to do this space is learning how to maintain us because you can't, you know, pour from an empty cup, of course. So, um, I mean, that's just something I'm working on. You all may hear more later, but the point is we got to take care of ourselves because we will burn out and we cannot just change the world by ourselves anyway. So just you touching on that, you struck a nerve because we've got to have that, my goodness, because if not, um, we die and has that helped anything? So yeah, it's just important to be able to do the work that we are crafted to do. There's pre-work and there's work during and even post if there's a such thing because we gotta care for ourselves. We can't love others more than we love ourselves. Amen. Amen. I know. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great note to end on. So this has been such a wonderful conversation. Chelsea, thank you for saying yes. Thank you for being such a good supporter and great friend. And I'm loving seeing you shine and walk in, in your calling. You're doing amazing things. And we look forward to continuing to follow you and your success. Um, I want to thank this audience for continuing to show up week after week. We know that there are many others that get exposed to these messages that are shared during our broadcast conversation um, because we share out the plays and, and we see the numbers and we're just delighted that you all are finding this to be valuable. We hope that you will join us in 2022, which is when we will return. Again, we're taking a sabbatical from the podcast during the month of December so that we can prepare for 2022, but we have some good stuff coming and, um, and we really look forward to bringing that to this community. So Chelsea, I want to give you the final remarks, close us out in whatever way. If there's something we you have not shared with us today that you're feeling really emboldened about and you want to put it into the atmosphere, I want to give you that chance to do so. Yes. Well, first, um, Nika, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the invitation and for your leadership, your presence, and your wonderful team. For all of you who showed up today, <clears throat> what I'm most hopeful for you is that you take some time to really think about your why. If you haven't sat down and really reflected on your why and, and really aligned on your values, I think now is the perfect time to do so. We have the opportunity and I think we live much more full lives when we are in touch with that. So my hope for you is that you are able to do that and that you think about how you can play a role in supporting the next generation, a mentor, a family member, a young person, um, because there's a need and a desire for the connection. And I think that there is an opportunity for us to be a part of supporting them forward. So thank you so much. And please do stay in touch. I'll share my LinkedIn. Absolutely. Everyone have a great, safe holiday week and great weekend. And we'll see you all soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.